This is Cultured Hollywood for smart people for Friday, November 13th, 2020. I am Nico and I am your host, Friday the 13th. The fuck out of here with that shit. Get out! No! Friday the 13th, 2020? Hell nah. Ain't nobody got time for that. God. Are you serious? It's Friday the 13th? On this of all years? Have we not suffered enough? How are we? I hope that you have an especially lucky Friday the 13th. (laughs) Because I know I'm having one just sitting here talking to you. It's my lucky day. And you know what? It's about to be yours. Uh, Welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, been a while. A lot has happened in the world. Uh, some good, mostly bad, but we have a new president, I guess. Not to get too political, but we're about to begin the Biden administration or (laughs) the first term of the Trump regime. I'm not sure which one, but something's coming on January 20th. So stay tuned. Uh, Look, I don't want to get too political. This isn't a political show. This is meant to be an escape from all of that noise. But every once in a while, when you're trying to focus on the world of popular culture, the world of politics comes around, collects its phlegm, and spits a big fat loogie (laughs) into your cultural soup. (laughs) Just... There it is. Ugh. There's a there's a politics loogie in my soup. Send it back. But you can't send it back. You just can't. It's not possible here. No refunds. Politics sometimes dovetails into the world of Hollywood. It happens, whether you'd like it or not. And, you know, sometimes Hollywood embraces that. Um, but we're moving into a new era of American politics, and I thought today would be a good opportunity to reflect on the past four years of popular culture, movies, television, music, take a look at how the American political system influenced those pieces of art over the past four years, and also speculate on where we're going. Because, look, nothing is made without context. Whether it's a house, or a preschooler's finger painting, or a meal, there is always a larger context in which that product is produced in, whether or not the producer is aware of it or not. And in Hollywood, this is certainly the case. Whether you're writing a horror movie or a romantic comedy or a television sitcom or a rap album, like there is always a larger cultural context. And we can disagree about what the context means. And we can certainly disagree on definitions of truth as we have over the past four years. But in general, like we are all under the same, you know, consciousness, collective consciousness. And um, it certainly affected Hollywood. It certainly affected music. It certainly affected literature. And it certainly affected theater. Um, And who knows where that goes? Who knows how we're going to adapt to the new way of doing things? How we're going to adapt to the new administration? Is art going to be a little more hopeful? Is it going to be a little more optimistic? Is it going to be a little less cynical and bitter? Or is the opposite going to happen? Are we only going to double down on our rage? Are we only going to double down on our confusion? Are we only going to double down at our anger at one another? I don't know. 
But now's as good a time as any to talk about it. So let's do that. The Trump era coming to a close. Four years, to be precise. Pretty short in the grand scheme of things. He was only a one-term president. He might be a two-term president. Maybe two non-consecutive terms. Might be a 12-year affair. It may be eight consecutive years, and there will be tanks outside your home by February. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. But for now, it appears that Trump is a one-term president, much like Jimmy Carter, much like George H.W. Bush, much like Gerald Ford, although he didn't serve a full four years. Well, that doesn't seem like very long. Four years is no time. High school is four years long. Middle school was four years long. Like, (laughs) you've probably had relationships that lasted four years that you were like, eh, I barely remember her middle name. You know? (laughs) It's a short period of time. But for some reason, it doesn't feel like we're done. And for some reason, it doesn't feel like we're going to forget the name Donald J. Trump. Or what he meant or what he represented or the things that he said and how you felt about him. Feels like those embers are burning pretty bright in the pits of your soul, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like we're done. I was watching SNL this past week, as I'm sure most of you did. Um, And uh, Dave Chappelle hosted, obviously, as he did four years ago after Trump won the presidency in November of 2016. He returned four years later again as a sort of state of the union address, you know, or like a state of the election, state of comedy address. Um, Dave Chappelle has sort of become the authority figure in this country, the sort of moral North Star in a strange way. Not for everyone. I know a lot of people get mad at what Dave Chappelle says, but um, I was sort of struck by how like how disinterested I was in the comedy. (laughs) Which, look, some people will say SNL has not been interested in comedy in about two decades. And fair enough. Your shots have been fired and they have hit straight on the bullseye. Um, But, like, I didn't watch that show to see Alec Baldwin's Trump impression. I didn't watch that show to see Jim Carrey's Joe Biden. I didn't watch that show to catch Weekend Update, Michael Che and Colin Jost, you know? I watched that show because I trust Dave Chappelle. I implicitly trust Dave Chappelle. And that's a crazy thing to say about a comedian. Because comedy oftentimes can be a very deceptive art form. And Dave Chappelle can be a very deceptive figure. Like his stand-up many times is incredibly dishonest. He is telling stories that have essence, have an essence of truth. But... You know, he's not actually sleeping with other women that aren't his wife. He's not actually selling drugs, you know? (laughs) Like, he uses these stories artistically, and oftentimes he says things that he does not believe in order to provoke, to challenge, to push the boundaries of the art form. So to say that I trust that guy is pretty crazy. Because, like, that's what you used to say about Cronkite. That's what you used to say about Dan Rather. That's what you used to say about Edward R. Murrow. Journalists 
were who we trusted. Newsmen were who we trusted. The six o'clock news was the program that we trusted, not Saturday Night Live. And look, I'm not sure journalism has ever been free of spin. I'm not sure that those men were any better than Rachel Maddow, were any better, better than Anderson Cooper. I don't know. I suspect that they weren't, but at least the feeling at the time was that they were to be trusted, and I think that was good enough. It's crazy that a comedian now has that mantle. I felt the same thing after the George Floyd incident. After George Floyd was killed, Chappelle put up that uh, half-hour stand-up special. What was it? Eight, eight minutes, 57 seconds? I forget the exact length. That was the amount of time, obviously, the officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Um, but he put that special up on YouTube. It was very unpolished. It was about a week after George Floyd was killed. And... Um, it wasn't particularly funny. There were some laugh lines because Dave Chappelle is a funny guy and he can't help himself. Um, but it was just, it was like a riveting sermon. Like I'm not a big church goer anymore, but like that was often the experience for me going to church. It was like, I was wrapped by this message. And I know a lot of people still have that experience when they listen to a great minister. The news has so much spin. Art has so much spin. Culture has so much spin. Dave Chappelle, impersonator of Rick James, the moral authority, the North Star, the most trusted man in America. Crazy. But I held on to every word of that monologue. Um, I thought it was brilliant, as I think most Dave Chappelle pieces are thought it was absolutely brilliant and i thought actually provided an interesting roadmap for where this conversation is going to go because first of all it was very trump heavy he talked about trump's covid response um he talked about you know trump saying kung flu at a press conference and Chappelle being mad that he didn't think of it first you know, he talked about Trump as though he was still our president. And by the way, he is still our president and will be for two months. But um, it did sort of linger on the past in an interesting way. And, you know, watching that, I didn't have the same feeling that I had in 2016 when Chappelle delivered that monologue. Because Obama was then the outgoing president. And there were mentions of Obama in that monologue, but it was not Obama-centric. It was about where we were going. It's not about where we were. This monologue was very different. Joe Biden, I'm not even sure his name was mentioned. This was not about where we're going. This is about dealing with that baggage that's dragging us down, that four-year period in American history that now we have to contend with. And an election is not enough. You know what I mean? Five million votes margin in the popular vote is not enough. Like there's still 70 million people out there that dig this dude and are going to continue to dig this dude and may vote for this dude in four years and are certainly going to affect policy. And again, I don't mean to make this political. I am not going to insert my own politics into this. But Chappelle didn't talk about the future here. 
He talked about dealing with the demons of the past. And he asked his audience to reflect on how they felt in 2016 when Trump won the White House. Be a gracious winner. Understand that there are people in this country hurting as much as you did in 2016. Talked about the white suicide rate, the white heroin rate. How white life expectancy the first time in American history is taking a dip because of these phenomena. You can't ignore Trump supporters as much as you'd like to. They're still there. They still got something to say. So my point is, and I think Chappelle's larger point was, the Trump era isn't over. We're still in the thick of it. And part of that is Trump's own unique personality, his his insatiable lust for attention. Like, he's not going to move to Texas and paint portraits of his cats like George Bush did. He's not going to write books and make Netflix documentaries like Obama. It's not going to happen. You know, like, this dude is going to remain in the public consciousness because he loves the camera and the camera loves him. But I also think, in terms of a one-term president, um, like, this was... This was a pretty accurate temperature check on where the country is. You know what I mean? This is perhaps the most culturally significant one-term president in the history of this country. Um, I guess maybe JFK you might put up there as well. Uh, He's not going away. And the wounds of the past four years are not going away. Or at least when they do heal, it's going to be after a lot of care and a lot of attention. So are movies going to stop being about Donald Trump? Is television going to stop being about Donald Trump? Will less books be written about Donald Trump? Will less music be focused on Trump's America? I doubt it. I doubt it. In the same way that like the wounds of the Nixon administration still affect popular culture, whether or not the artist is aware of it. You know, that feeling of skepticism, of anger, of mistrust of uh of rage that doesn't go away easily and i think you know we were kind of lucky because over the last 20 30 years regardless of your politics like i think the guy in the white house was um was inconspicuous enough to not affect your daily life in a meaningful way or at least did not haunt the <laughs> inner crevices of your soul on a daily basis you know if you're a conservative you didn't like obama that much and if you were a liberal like you didn't care for bush's foreign policy and uh, you know yeah i mean sure like there was art made about bush and there was art made about obama and clinton was certainly not a great character with the ladies but in general and reagan's another thing but in general i think you know We're not talking in hyperbole when we talk about the president. This was the first time where it's like, you are going to have an opinion on this man. And that opinion is going to define your character to some people. Like, you will be viewed differently in your friends and family's eyes based on who you voted for one way or the other. And both sides are guilty of this. You know what I mean? Like, the idea of a moderate, I've called myself a moderate for a while... 
the idea of a moderate does not really exist. And I've taken a lot of fire for that point of view. Um, I, I think art is, has, has taken that lead and in a similar way has been like, if you are not talking about Trump, then shut the fuck up. You know, <laughs> that's really what it's been. It's like, you want to make an Iron Man movie? Fine. But it better say something about capitalism. You know? Demi Lovato, you want to record a hit single? Fine. But you better call out Donald Trump by his name. Taylor Swift saying to you, honey, that shake it off routine isn't going to work anymore. I need endorsements in Alabama now. (sighs) Uh, I, I don't know how you put that, uh, it ba- that back in the jar. I really don't know. I, I don't know how you move on from an incredibly divisive era of, of popular culture, you know? And by the way, I do want to say this, I think in general, and there are exceptions to this, but I think in general, like the popular culture of the Trump administration has been quite bad. Like, I I don't think Hollywood ever figured out how to tell these stories. And it's early, and maybe they will figure it out eventually. Um, But I I think, like, if you look back on it, Trump art is pretty on the nose. And I'm not sure you could say that about prior presidents. But you could certainly say it about this one. This shit is just calling out Trump by name. Explicitly. It is in your face about it. These movies, these albums, these TV shows hate the guy and they want to convince you to hate the guy as well that wasn't the case in prior administrations that wasn't the case during bush during reagan during clinton during nixon like the art of yesteryear used more obfuscation it trojan horsed certain political ideas into broader stories it was telling you something about the world it was telling you something about the temperature of this nation But it wasn't being so explicit about it. It wasn't being so vocal about it. It used poetry. It used metaphor. And I just think in general, that is a more effective way of communicating a point of view. Like, look at the Bush administration, for example. Like, post 9-11, there's a lot of pain in this country, but there's also a lot of faith in the American spirit. And also, like, candidly, faith in the American military. And at first... The war in the Middle East was fairly popular. I think that's where a lot of the Catherine Bigelow movies sort of uh, find their origins. I know that was both Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty were made during the Obama administration. But I think both were sort of remnants of a more traditional, more neoconservative political outlook. Um, But then you also have, you know, shit like 25th Hour, which came out Spike Lee's movie right after 9-11, I think it was a year after 9-11. You know, there is a scene in that movie where Ground Zero is depicted and the rubble is still there and the wounds are still fresh. Um, But that movie was able to communicate a feeling in the air, on the ground, in New York City, um, without explicitly saying, like, 9-11 was bad. Screw Osama Bin Laden. Right? It was more about the feeling of it. Same thing if you go back to Nixon, you know, like there were certain political thrillers like Parallax View and Manchurian Candidate that seemed like, you know, they were explicit 
uh, it, it was as explicit a, a rebuke on Nixon as you could make without depicting the character Richard Nixon in the movie. You know, they were about Richard Nixon without really being about Richard Nixon. But all of the Vietnam War movies, including like Apocalypse Now and Platoon, although again, they were made after Nixon, they used poetry. They used a feeling. They used a vibe. That's filmmaking. That's art. It's the ability to communicate something without explicitly saying it. It is showing, not telling. Apocalypse Now, in many ways, is a political movie. It is a movie about unchecked power. It is a movie about a pointless war. It is a movie about, uh, you know, how the human condition is predisposed to do horrible things to each other. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's about Nixon. I mean, it's not all the president's men. But it's about Nixon. Look at Reagan, right? Like punk rock, dead Kennedys, whatever, uh, Depeche Mode. Like they made music about Reagan and maybe some of those artists explicitly mentioned Reagan. But in general, it was the 80s and there was a youthful energy because like an old rigid conservative was in the white house and Nancy Reagan's telling you to just say no to drugs. And you're being like, fuck you, Nancy. I'm going to say yes, just because you told me to say no. And so again, you can talk about Reagan without explicitly mentioning Reagan this year. God, like Demi Lovato just made a song called commander in chief Kendrick Lamar, who I think is probably the greatest rapper alive explicitly mentioned Trump on two separate records. Damn is one of the most political records I've ever heard in my life. Talking about Fox news, Geraldo Rivera, even Spike Lee, who I just mentioned made a very nuanced movie about a particular era in 25th hour. His movies were dominated by Trump, even black Klansman, which at first was just a metaphor. And at first, the audience could pick up what he was putting down. At the end of the movie, just throws in a montage of Charlottesville. And, you know, includes clips of Donald Trump saying good people on both sides, as if the audience had not already understood the metaphor. And then in his latest movie, To Five Bloods, there is a character that wears a MAGA hat the entire time. Do you see the Comey rule on Showtime? My God, was that show bad. Brendan Gleeson doing a decent Trump impression, but the depiction was so over the top and so explicitly evil and so stiff in its writing and just so unnuanced in its performance. I think in many ways, what we, you know, years from now, we'll consider the best piece of Trump era art is Jordan Peele's Get Out. I think that is probably the movie of the moment. And it was at the beginning of the Trump era and it, you know, said certain things. And of course, Bradley Whitford says that he would vote for Obama for a third term if he could. And, uh, you know, dances around the issue. But even Jordan Peele in his filmmaking, especially in us, was very explicit about the state of this nation and the reasons why. I just think in general, this guy was so bombastic, was so over the top, was so demanding of attention that 
filmmakers and writers and producers and musicians couldn't help themselves. And I, I just don't think they were ever clear eyed enough on the issues. I'm, I'm not sure that they were ever able to take a step back. And I understand why I get it. I've been doing this podcast for six years now. Four of those six years, actually five of those six years have been dominated by the president dominated. I hate talking about politics on this show, but here we are talking about it again. And the guy just got voted out. I don't think creators ever understood how to tell Trump stories. I don't think they ever realized that the most fascinating stories were not in the White House, but outside of the White House. That the best stories were in rural America, in the suburbs, in the cities, in fact. Like how Trump supporters lived, why they believed the things they did, and how we got here as a nation. Because again, like Trump is just a symbol, man. Trump is just the Trojan horse. But I don't think they were ever interested in telling those stories, frankly. And look, Ron Howard has a movie called Hillbilly Elegy coming out in like two weeks. Apparently, it's not very good. I hear Glenn Close is good in it. Uh, it is a, an adaptation of a novel written from the perspective of, I believe, a Trump supporter. Or at least the novel was written in a way that was forgiving of Trump supporters and perhaps reflected a lot of the ideologies of those people. And it's about sort of, you know, the the left behind white man. And I, look, it's interesting. I, I don't know how good the movie will be, but it, I mean, that idea is certainly interesting. Um, I don't think Hollywood is really interested in that, though. Um and it shows. Frankly, it shows. The other thing, too, like comedy has been not good. Has been very ungood. <laughs> you look at late night talk shows, Stephen Colbert sort of emerged as the political talk show host, as sort of the next John Stewart, as the guy that you go to if you want the news, but in a slightly um a slightly absurd way. Jimmy Fallon, that sort of brand of comedy of just like viral hits. We're going to uh, we're going to play flip cup with uh, Kendall Jenner. That whole era has sort of been left behind. And now we are in an era where talk show hosts have much sharper teeth and are willing to, again, explicitly call out the president by name. But what those shows fail to understand and what SNL failed to understand and what sitcoms failed to understand is that like the Trump White House is beyond parody. It's absurd enough. It's ridiculous enough. This character is already a cartoon. And we've been saying it for years, but comedy still did not take that lesson to heart. It is hard to parody something that is already a living parody. You can't parody a parody. It's like the scary movie um, uh, dilemma. Remember scary movie? The Wayans brothers attempted to lampoon Scream, which was already a parody of slasher movies. It was already a self-aware thing. You can't make a parody of a parody. And that's sort of what happened here. Like, 
First of all, Trump is already a funny guy, just as is. He is a funny guy. His existence is funny, and that's why he had so much success in reality television. As a devout viewer of The Celebrity Apprentice, let me tell you, that show was never about business. That show was never about advertising. That show was never about sales. That was a show about Gary Busey. accidentally exposing his junk to the camera like that's or Dennis Rodman going on a drunken rampage it was a comedy show and Trump has listen whether you like it or not comedy chops the guy's a funny guy and so it was very hard to lampoon it was very hard to satirize it was very hard to turn that into parody and I'm not sure they ever figured it out maybe they would have if given four more years I guess we'll never know, though. So where do we go from here? I don't know. Something tells me Joe Biden's going to be a pretty, like, under-the-radar president. I'm not sure he's going to deliver that many press conferences. I'm not sure that his State of the Union addresses will be headline bait. I'm not sure there's going to be a ton of pull quotes to talk about on weekend update. I think that the Trump era, at least in popular culture is still in full progress. What that means for us. I don't know, but God help us all. This is cultured. When we come back, the loss of a legend stick around. All right. Uh, uh, God damn it. This year, man. Ugh. Awful. Terrible. I can't take it anymore. So bad. Um, it's Friday today. Okay, so five days ago, Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, in fact, I'm at the gym, wailing on the pecs, as I am wont to do. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't wailing on the pecs. The pecs were already wailed um, to, to the fullest extent. So... What was I doing? Abs, I think. Yeah, okay. I was doing abs, planking, curling, stretching, sitting up, you know, <laughs> got to get that core in shape. Uh, I'm at the gym and uh, I, I, I get the alert on my phone that Alex Trebek had just died at the age of 80, losing his battle to pancreatic cancer. Um, and I was in a public place and... Uh, I don't know why this keeps happening, but I started crying. I started crying. (laughs) Such a fucking idiot. (laughs) I started crying in the gym to myself. Luckily, I had a mask on, so it it was able to at least cover up my grimace a bit. Uh, So I had to like just hide in the corner for a couple seconds. And then my brother, who was also at the gym with me, I, I went up to him and he was doing legs i think and i told them the news and it just bummed us out and bummed everyone out um it's just horrible Here, here's the lesson right horrible year to be a hero of nico bad year we lost regis we lost alex trebek i advise larry david to get his annual physical that's all i'm saying if you are howard stern if you are jerry seinfeld I I just advise, if you haven't been to the doctor in a while, go. Go now. 
awful. Awful. I can't catch a break this year. I did the same thing. I was in the car by myself when I found out Regis died. I was almost with a buddy of mine. I wasn't, thank God, because I began sobbing when Regis died. Just watching clips of who wants to be a millionaire on my smartphone. Same thing happened here. Alex goes, uh, just a horrible, horrible moment. And we had been prepped for this for a while. I mean, he announced over a year and a half ago that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer. The survival rate a year out from such a disease is only 5%. And that includes young people. That includes people that are not working. Alex Trebek, at the age of 80, kept working throughout the entire process. His last day of filming October 29th, that is less than two weeks after he passed away at home. Um, And, you know, those episodes will air leading all the way up until Christmas Day. That's when his final episode will air that he filmed of Jeopardy. Um, So it was already a miracle point is that he had lasted this long. And it's, you know, been just a year and a half of, uh, of kind of the greatest hits tour, right? Like America fell in love with Jeopardy again. And it's been an amazing thing to see as a guy that has watched a lot of Jeopardy in his life. I was actually thinking about this. There is perhaps no human being I have spent more time watching that I don't know than Alex Trebek. It's possible if you take my family and friends out of it, maybe just even my immediate family, there is no human being I have spent more time with than Alex Trebek. Because Jeopardy probably was the most log show of my life. In terms of hours watched. Um, maybe Seinfeld is in there. Like maybe some cartoons that I watched as a kid on a loop. You know, maybe SpongeBob. <laughs> if SpongeBob is considered a person, then yeah, he's probably in my top five too. Um, but it, it was just cool to see America fall in love with this institution again. And it's not really the type of institution. It's not really the type of show that you would think young people would embrace but they just did that greatest of all time tournament in january thank god they did it james holtower ken jennings brad rudder returned to jeopardy to compete against one another i think it was like a what a four night event it was in prime time that shit had higher ratings than the nba finals that shit had higher ratings than the world series which is astounding and it also means that not just old people are watching this show. Not just folks in the retirement community. Not just grandma, you know, at seven o'clock when her kids are ignoring her. Like, this show has translated to multiple generations. People that once watched it still watch it. Those that are new to it have their new obsession. So many people that I know in their 20s watch that show every night and they play along and I like I I, uh, I I know some people that like every night they would watch Jeopardy when they were in college and they had like a whiteboard and they would tally up anytime someone in the room got the correct answer on Jeopardy. They would put a little check mark next to their name and they kept score um, as though they were playing along at home. This was in college. This is in college. Jeopardy has invaded dorm rooms. It's invaded retirement communities. It's uh, invaded family households. It's invaded the viewing habits of young children. It's in hospitals. It's in libraries. It's in bars. It's everywhere. And you have got to give some of, if not most of that credit to Alex Trebek. Most of it. 
Here's the thing. There have been several versions of Jeopardy over the years. Jeopardy was a game show before Alex Trebek hosted it. Art Fleming was the original host. You can see some of those episodes on YouTube. It was not quite fully formed. It was still in its infancy. It had not yet cocooned into a butterfly. And then you have like Sports Jeopardy hosted by Dan Patrick on, I think it's Fox or ESPN. NBC Sports, maybe. You have Jeff Probst doing rock and roll Jeopardy in the early 2000s. Like, there have been several iterations with several different hosts, none of them quite the original Jeopardy. He was just the best at what he did, and he set the tone for that show. He created that template, the class, the debonair, the seriousness, but also the courage to push the boundaries and to poke fun and to be self-aware. For years, he represented to America the strict father figure, the uptight college professor. Remember in high school, did you have that teacher in high school? It was usually a man, but sometimes it was a woman. Usually he was a man. Always wore a tie. He, he must have been teaching in like, in the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. Like the guy just seemed even older than he was and he was already old to begin with. And he was really old school and there weren't a lot of jokes. And uh, like, you learned a bit from his lectures, but it was not the most engaging class. Then one day, like he just took the TV out and it's like, fuck it. We're watching a fast and furious movie. Here's some popcorn. Those days were the best days because we had plenty of cool teachers. Like we had the teachers that were like in their mid twenties, fresh out of graduate school. It was like, all right, kiddos, you ready to do some rapping about math equations? And like you rolled your eyes because yeah, you're trying to be cool, but you're you're just a few years off. It was always much cooler when the 80-year-old teacher let loose. It was much cooler when that guy told the joke, when that guy made fun of you, when that guy let loose. And that was the case with Trebek. It was all business on that show until it wasn't. And that's what happened later on in his career. That's what happened towards the, you know, the, the, the end of his run on that show. He started cracking more jokes, started having more fun with the contestants. He started leaning into his persona. He showcased his incredible sense of humor and he evolved and he once again became a staple of American culture for another generation of television viewer, even viewers that don't watch television anymore that just catch jeopardy episodes on Netflix, old jeopardy episodes or watch the clips on, on YouTube. He became relevant and alive again in the eyes of so many people. Um, just wonderful. He was just, he was just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful figure in American culture. Um, and obviously the show is never going to be the same again. Just not. And uh, it's nice to see that, you know, more people care about Jeopardy than ever before. And I do hope that it continues, whoever that host is. Uh, but he was that show. And I also just like, I miss the idea of a game show host. I, I've said this many times before. That was my dream job. Growing up, eight years old, game show host, baby. Put it in the yearbook. It's what I want to be when I grow up. want to be Richard Dawson. want to be Regis Philbin. I want to be Alex Trebek. 
There was a time where you could just be a game show host. There was a time where you didn't have to do stand-up. You didn't have to be an actor. You didn't have to be beautiful. You could just be a game show host. (laughs) And that was a career. Alex Trebek was a game show host. He was a television presenter from Canada that became the host of a game show because hosting is what he did. Regis, same thing. He was a weatherman. He was a producer. He like picked up the coffee for the Today Show anchors. He was a host. And now it's like, yeah, Alec Baldwin is a host and... Jimmy Kimmel is a host and Leslie Jones is a host. All funny people, all good at what they do. But God, Alex Trebek is going to be that guy. Till the end of time, when you think game show host, Alex Trebek, that's the face. And I don't want to make any more of it than that. You know, he's just a really good game show host. And there are plenty of obituaries in the Times and the Washington Post, whatever. Alex Trebek was the last vestige of truth. He proved that America was hungry for a dose of reality. He represents a brighter future in post-Trump America. I just think that's a load of crap. I really do. Like, I just think that is making a little too much of it. Like, yeah, okay. There's only one correct answer, and he was the authority. And I guess, like... You know, a a shrink in Beverly Hills could probably come to a similar conclusion. (laughs) Like, good job. Good, good backseat therapy right there, New York Times. Um, No, I just think people were drawn to him. You know, I, I just think people were drawn to that type of persona, to that type of figure. And I think in general are drawn toward intelligence. As, as much as we like to pretend that we're not and as much as, uh, you know, idiocy or um, hmm, how, how do I delicately put this? As much as we like to champion being average, I think there are more people that aspire to greatness than just average. OK, how about that? Do we underestimate our our desire to gain knowledge? I think so. We like to play it down, but I think people like knowing shit. I know I'd certainly like knowing shit. And I'm sure most of you listening now like knowing shit. That's why you're listening to this. And I think Jeopardy was an outlet to learn shit. And uh, I don't think that hunger goes away. I think it's, it's one of the beautiful things about life is that your quest for knowledge, your quest for understanding, your quest to know more never ends because not everything is knowable. Um... But damn, it felt like Alex Trebek knew all those answers, didn't it? Um, Rest in peace to an absolute hero, to a god among men, um, to just one of the bravest motherfuckers that's ever walked this planet. (laughs) I know brave is a word that we throw around a little too liberally these days. You know, if like you play a burn victim on an ABC (laughs) dramedy. You're considered brave. Such a brave performance. Tell me, how did you find the courage to go there? No, I think working while battling an insanely lethal form of cancer uh, all the way up until two weeks before it kills you, I think that's brave. I think walking onto that stage with a smile on your face and like uh, the knowledge that everything's not going to be all right, but 
the courage to say that everything is going to be all right, that constitutes bravery. That's brave, man. That's heroism. And man, I wish I had that courage now. Never mind at the age of 80. I hope to have just a fraction of it at that age in my life if I make it that long. Um, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him so much. It's a very sad week. Please, SNL, let's bring back Celebrity Jeopardy. Okay? Can we do it? It's amazing. Trebek and Connery, dead within a week of one another. We got we got to do it. We, we have to do it. <laughs> bring back Farrell. Bring back Daryl Hammond. One more time. Screw you, Trebek. Moo. <laughs> We're begging for it. Please, let's get Celebrity Jeopardy one last time. This is Cultured. Some other bits of news after this break. Stick around. Uh, all right. This is something I care a lot about. Talked a lot about it in the past, and I will continue to every year until I die. The Super Bowl halftime show. It has just been announced that Canadian R&B artist, The Weeknd, <laughs> will be headlining. Super Bowl 55 halftime show headlined by The Weeknd. Uh, Canadian artist behind Blinding Lights, Starboy, In Your Eyes, Can't Feel My Face, Earned It, Star of Uncut Gems, one of many legends depicted in that film, along with Mike Francesa and Kevin Garnett, The Weeknd. Who knows who else is going to fill out the, the bottom half of this bill, by the way. That's what the Super Bowl in general has been doing over the past few years. Last year, Shakira and J-Lo co-headlined the thing. The year before that, Travis Scott joined Maroon 5. So it is very unlikely that The weekend will be the only artist featured. Um, I actually think the way to do this is to get The weekend and Drake together. Do they not like each other? I am I just totally making that up? No, they like each other, right? Yeah. So here's what I would do. I would call Drake up and I would say, let's just let's go full Canuck on this shit. Let's just turn this into a fully Canadian halftime show and uh and uh and just make it legendary. I'm I'm cool with the weekend. I actually like the song featured in Uncut Gems. That actually might be my favorite weekend song, Pray for Love. Actually, I think that is a Travis Scott record that the weekend is featured on. Or maybe it's the other way around. Um Yeah, I I think it's fine. I do miss the era of just bringing out the stones or bringing out the E street band for one last hurrah. I just, I don't know. I'm a big fan of post nipple gate halftime shows. Prince was, I think the year after Janet Jackson, right? Uh, the Springsteen show is just iconic. I, I thought the McCartney show was okay. I'm a big defender of the who halftime show. Um, and, and uh, I, I do think over the last few years, we have skewed a little too poppy. Just in general, I was a big fan of JLo and Shakira didn't really care for Maroon 5 at all. Uh, Black Eyed Peas was a while ago, I guess. What, what else was like in recent memory? The Lady Gaga one was really good. That one was just excellent. But that's because Lady Gaga has a feel for the big, right? Like she's a theater kid and like her shows have often been very theatrical and they play well for a massive arena and also a massive audience at home. I do think in general, like the best 
Super Bowl artists are the best live performers, not necessarily the best recording artists. And Shakira and J-Lo definitely fit that bill. Prince certainly fit that bill. Even like the rock bands like U2 and Springsteen, they are traditional concert bands. They are a live act, each of them. Um, They made most of their money. I think most of their legacy is defined by their ability to tour. And you look at bands like The Who, you look at Paul McCartney... I mean, the the uh, the the less successful halftime shows have always been super famous people that don't really translate well to a live audience. Coldplay, another perfect example, right? I I don't know if the weekend is a is a world renowned live performer. I've never seen the weekend in concert. Um, you know, he's obviously got a very popular song that I find very annoying. The kids on TikTok love it. And I'm not sure the thinking went much further than that at NFL headquarters. I think it was like, oh, yeah, what's that song that my daughter made me dance to when quarantine started? (laughs) And uh, that's what you got, I guess. Right. It'll be fine. It'll be cool. The guy's got a good voice. It's as smooth as butter. The weekend's voice. Um, (laughs) Would I have preferred Jay-Z? Would I have preferred Rihanna? What I preferred Taylor Swift, all names that have been thrown out over the past few years, of course. Of course I do. Do I wish that they would just fucking suck it up, grow a pair of balls, and ask Kanye to do the halftime show? Of course I do. But my God, Roger Goodell does not have that sort of courage. Come on. Who are we talking about here? Man up. Give Kanye a call, Roger Goodell. If you were truly a man... All that Kaepernick shit would be forgiven if you just gave Kanye a call and let him do whatever the hell he wanted. String quartets, ballerinas, pyrotechnics, the whole thing. Live teddy bear. (laughs) Well, not a live teddy bear. (laughs) Big teddy bear. Whatever Kanye wants to do. Like if you really if you really wanted to grow a pair and and you really wanted to make a statement with your halftime show call Kanye up until then I guess we're stuck with the weekend I am I am fine with it I guess I'm also past that age where I get mad about this shit so cool congrats Kanye uh to (laughs) congrats to the weekend the weekend sorry um what else uh oh so streaming news I know like we've spent a lot of time on this over the past three or four months and I I wanted to give you a break this week uh, but Disney Plus just reported that they have 70 million subscribers at exactly a year after their debut in November of 2019. 72, 72 million or 70 million? I, I, I got to check that number again. But over 70 million subscribers to Disney Plus a year after its launch. They had initially projected Disney 60 to 90 million subscribers by 2024. That was their initial estimate. That's what they told shareholders. That was the goal. And the higher end of that, 90 million after four years would have been considered an astounding win. They're already surpassing the lower end of the goal a year into their launch. It is a, it is a big deal. Disney Plus is a, is a major deal. The new Pixar movie, Soul, is going to launch on that platform. Who knows? If any of the Marvel movies will eventually come there, I, I'm I'm a little skeptical of that. Now, I think within three years, especially if AMC 
and Regal are not in business a year from now, I, I think it is not only plausible, I think it is likely that you're going to see the new Black Widow movie, the new Black Panther movie, um, the the Eternals movie on Disney Plus within the next two or three years. I 100% think that's where this is going. Also, some whispers. HBO Max may launch Wonder Woman 1984 on their platform before hitting theaters or at least soon after hitting theaters. January 2020 or 2021 is being discussed as a possible launch date for Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, not traditionally when you release a superhero movie like that, a big budget blockbuster, January is sort of known as a ghost town. It's a desert. You just see tumbleweeds rolling through movie theaters in the middle of January. Who knows what those rules mean in a post theater world? Who knows what those rules mean if streaming is the dominant platform? Does it matter what time you put out a movie? It certainly still matters for award show consideration. Netflix is still going to put out Mank, the new David Fincher project, in the fall because that's traditionally when award season starts ramping up. But in terms of big budget blockbusters like that, not a lot of competition in January. You have football, but you have football all throughout the fall. You have football during Christmas. You're gonna Sports are always going to be an issue no matter when you put out your movie. Uh, maybe January is the time to do it. I'm sure Netflix doesn't have a particularly deep bench, you know, ready for January. I'm sure no other studio is going to have the balls to put out a superhero movie to compete with Wonder Woman. That might be the time to do it. Keep an eye on that story. That is a big freaking deal. A big freaking deal. If you see Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max this January, not only because it's a major tentpole that Warner Brothers invested a lot of money in, but also with the timing. January, a very interesting month on the calendar for Hollywood. And then there's this issue of No Time to Die, which has been talked about for a while. The new James Bond movie directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga has been pushed several times by MGM, the studio that owns it. Um, at first, I think it was slated for, what, April of 2020? Got pushed to the fall, November 2020, and now being pushed to 2021 with a release date indefinite word on the street is Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all inquired about the new bond movie, but it was Apple TV plus that made a hard offer somewhere in the ballpark of $300 million. MGM wanted $700 million, a lot of money for a movie that is certainly a major release and is certainly, you know, going to make a lot at the box office. It would need to be in the ballpark of 300 to 400 million for MGM to even consider taking it out of theaters, you know, especially with an international audience, you can just make a fortune with ticket sales. Um, but evidently talks got pretty far. Stop short of that number Apple ultimately decided not to buy it. That would have been a big deal. And it still can be a big deal if they choose to sell. Who knows if that deal is still alive or not. But if it does, if MGM and the James Bond franchise are the first to cave to streaming, that's going to be a major domino to fall. And you're just going to see a, a watershed moment. You're going to see a lot of other studios 
as fast as they can rushing to the phone to make a deal with their major tentpole because uh, this is a copycat business. Everyone's been chasing Netflix for 10 years because Netflix was the first of the party. They were there before everyone else. That was their only advantage. And now they are the biggest media company in the world. This is the gold rush. You got to get out there now. You got to start digging now. You can't afford to wait because every week it seems like a new streaming service is launching. And unlike companies like even Warner Brothers or AT&T, Apple has the deep pockets. And this is just a side hustle for them. Like Apple's already making money on your phones. It's already making money with your computers. It's all, it is already selling you the hardware for you to watch Netflix, for you to watch Amazon, for you to watch Hulu. They don't need to succeed in the streaming space. They're just putting money into it because they can. And that's dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Like th- that is power right there. The power of just like, you know, dropping a hundred dollar bill on the road and not picking it up. That's power. And that's what Apple is doing here. They are playing around in the sandbox of streaming. They are kicking over everyone else's sandcastles because they find it funny. But it's not going to be funny if they get the Bond movie and they keep acquiring more movies and they put AMC out of business and they put Warner Brothers out of business and they force another merger with like Paramount or something. Big developments in the streaming wars. Do keep an eye on it. Um... And I also, I did want to mention this, by the way, I am, uh, I am watching the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. I am way late to the party. I know I'm three weeks late. I've been spending so much time obsessing over politics and just reading the New York Times for three hours a day and looking at the upshot and looking at Real Clear's average and trusting Nate Silver's fucking stupid models. I spent so much time obsessing about the election um, that I, I missed the Queen's the queen's gambit which is number one on netflix top 10 stars uh anna taylor joy as a young chess prodigy this is a period piece set in the 1960s based on a novel of i believe the same name uh and this show's just so fucking awesome and i i probably the last podcast to say this and i'm not reporting anything new but if you have not watched this show I think this is the closest thing to Mad Men that I have seen since Mad Men went off the air. Period piece, incredible production design, such specific detail paid to the period elements of this show. Feels like, you know, it's just a very immersive portrait of a world that I love spending time in. Hyper character driven, pretty dark, pretty nuanced, pretty subtle, similar to Mad Men, just the angst of that era, right? The angst of 1960s America and the angst of a young girl growing up in 1960s America in a predominantly man's world was something reflected beautifully in Mad Men with Elizabeth Moss's character of Peggy. And I think Anna Taylor-Joy's character has Peggy vibes, you know? And I just love shows like this. I just love slow burn character dramas where... Everything looks great on the surface, but is there, there's this dark, sinister energy brewing under the surface. Not what you would think of as a Netflix show traditionally, although that definition changes by the week. Generally, Netflix shows are made to be binged. They are uh, they, they are 
often hyper serialized and leave each episode with a cliffhanger so you will autoplay the next one this show has some of that i find it very bingeable but i think it is better taken in small doses one episode at a time um just one of the best shows of the year and i I, scott frank who wrote all seven episodes directed all seven episodes also did the miniseries godless on netflix a few years ago with jeff daniels and wrote out of sight wrote minority report did that movie walk among the tombstones with liam neeson veteran uh hollywood writer veteran tv writer just crushes it here just absolutely crushes it the scripts are immaculate the direction is so precise so specific so dense just this thing is dripping with subtext um and i love it i i i truly think it's a great show and the cast is unbelievable anna taylor joy is a star we know this already uh, there's only so many ways we can say this lover and split I, I hear she's great in the witch usually the best thing in any movie that she's in but also like you have a great bench of character actors bill camp plays like the mr miyagi figure bill camp veteran tv character actor amazing just hits it out of the park in this marielle heller the um like indie director the hot indie director did uh the uh mr rogers movie last year um beautiful day in the neighborhood and also um can you ever forgive me with melissa mccarthy she plays the main character's adopted mother in this show and is just spectacular so good if you like mad men if you are interested in chess which I'm not, but I think I am now. <laughs> Do check out this show. It, it is one of my shows of the year, and I'm sure I'll be writing about it at some point on the site as the year comes to a close and we start doing retrospective stuff. All right, that's it. Oh man, that was a that was a jam packed episode. I love you. Did you know that? I feel like I don't tell you that enough, but I really do love you. You guys are the best. Uh, Join our Discord. The link is actually in the description for this episode. So however you're listening to this, do click on the link. Join our Discord. You can also find the link on the website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com or tmt.media, where all of our podcasts are available from Movie Hall of Fame to Why Is This a Thing to the Fantasy Book of the Month to this one. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill, but you guys already did it because you're the best. But do join the Discord. Vote in the Dave Draft Frank edition. <laughs> How do I explain what this is? Well, on why is this a thing? We had this idea to hold a fantasy draft for guys named Dave. We called it the Dave Draft. We each had a team of four Daves. We put it up on the Discord, and our listeners voted who had the best roster of Daves. Adam won the Dave Draft, so we decided to run it back. This time it is Dave Draft Frank edition. All three of us uh, drafted a team of four Franks. Um, I guess I can read it right now. <laughs> and currently Nick is leading in the polls, but I am not too far behind. So please do support my team of Franks. I drafted Frank Sinatra, Francis McDormand, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Frankie Munez. Nick drafted Benjamin Franklin, Frank Dukes, Aretha Franklin and Frank Herbert. Adam drafted Frank Oz, Frank and Furter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Francis Ford Coppola, and Frankenstein's Monster. 
<laughs> so if you want to vote in that poll, go to the Discord, click on the Why Is This a Thing channel, scroll up a little bit, you'll see the three rosters with thumbs up symbols next to them. Click the thumbs up behind, uh, next to your favorite team. And uh, there you go. May the best man win in a very dirty campaign, by the way. A lot of mudslinging, but I'm above it, man. When they go low, we go high. I love you. <laughs> Come back next time. Well, yeah, because uh, you know what happens then. Well, you and I, we get culture. Love you.